0: This is hell.
1: Truly revolting radio. This is hell. And more than likely, like me, you get a truly revolting image in your head when you hear the words, the suburbs or the burbs, as they're often derogatorily known. When you hear those words, you may imagine a lily-white place outside of the reach of the city and the people who dwell there. A place where racism is both visible and invisible, at times blatant and for all the world to see, while at others it can only be heard through dog whistles. Or is just completely unrecognizable by those who are engaging in racism, whether they realize they are engaging in racism or not. If it, it's a place where the homes are nearly indistinguishable from one another, just like its residents. A place where those who have left the city behind are searching for their American dream of finally rising from the blue-collar jobs of the working class to the white-collar jobs of the professional and middle classes. A place that drives inequality in the ideas of us versus them. However, as suburbs are growing increasingly ethnically, racially, and religiously diverse, maybe, just maybe, the suburbs are leaving all that racism, that inequality, that us versus them thinking behind. Guess again, as our guest will talk about today and in fact, the suburbs haven't changed much at all, despite them becoming far more diverse than they were in the past. In a few minutes, we will be speaking with writer and organizer Sudeep Bhattacharya, who posted the article, Socialism or Suburbia, at hardcrackers.com. You can find the, uh, his other work at outlets like Protean Magazine, Counterpunch, reappropriate, and the aerogram, where he is a staff writer. Sudeep is a doctoral candidate in political science at Rutgers University, where he is focusing on issues of race in the United States. As an organizer, Sudeep is the chair of political education at the Central New Jersey Chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. He also works at the Tubman-Hampton Collective a conference that can bring together students of color in New Jersey to connect, discuss, and plan for a brighter future for universities and their communities. You can follow Sudeep on Twitter at Resist Run. Resist Run. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, yesterday we read an email from Andrew at MassiveBookshop.com which is anti-profit not uh, not for profit but anti-profit. Raises money to pay bail for those who are being held in jail. Andrew wrote, I wanted to mention that in addition to using profits from the bookstore to bail people out of jail we also fully subsidize the cost of sending books to folks in jails or prisons up to $50 a month If any of your listeners know someone on the inside it would be great to let them know about this as often people use Amazon or some other crappy outlet to do this so I mentioned you and your work uh, immediately helping people out uh, who have just been released from jail here in Chicago So is it cool if I give Andrew your contact information to see if there is some way uh, in which the two of you can help each other out or maybe you can help connect him with other folks here in Chicago who can use the service like Andrew's?
0: I'd love that. That sounds great.
1: Awesome. Because I really want you to, and again, tell people the name of the organization that you work with downtown.
0: Doing Chicago Community Jail Support. Every night between 5.30 and 10.30, we're out in front of the uh, jail on 27th and California helping people out with snacks, drinks, cigarettes, rides. And anything else they might need, warm clothing especially. So we're just standing out in front of there under a big purple tent. Please come <laughs> down. It's easy as heck and really fun to volunteer. Um, and if you wanna uh, sign up uh, ahead of time, you can just type "Chicago Community Jail Support" into your uh, search engine of choice. But if you don't want to do that, just come on down.
1: <laughs> Chicago Community Jail Support, or just go down to 26th in California. 27th. 26th is
0: the Popeyes. Okay.
1: <laughs> you are correct. That is the Popeyes. Uh, 27th, 27th in California. And also you can check out Dan's comic book at 50flipexperiment.com. Other than that, what's new in your world?
0: Not much. I uh, rode up the uh, North Branch Trail on my little bicycle oh, yeah. over the weekend when it was so nice. How far did you get up? I got all the way up to the Botanic Gardens Mm. after going down to La to start it, so it was a long day for me. I'm usually doing, you know, more like chores and stuff on my bike. I'm not usually doing a long ride like that. Felt good.
1: If you go when uh, the uh, basically the North Shore Trail starts at Laba Woods, mm-hmm. and if you uh, are going north, yeah, um, that's where it takes you up to the Skokie Lagoons mm-hmm. and yeah, the Holocaust Museum, and then onto the Botanical Gardens. That's right. But if you go in the opposite direction, instead of going north, you go south. There's uh, an old railroad, a uh, set of old railroad tracks that just kind of dead ends and trees are growing through the uh, railroad oh, yeah. ties now, and at that very dead end, going in the opposite direction, there's a large community of homeless people living over there.
0: Well, maybe I should bring some sandwiches down. Exactly. exactly. I think I did see that sort of, uh, it looked like an old train track that had turned into gravel, like a gravel road. Right, but exactly. I'm going to exactly. go down that. How far down does it go from La Bag? Is it just a of couple like... of blocks or
1: a long time? Maybe a half mile at the very most. It doesn't go very far before you hit. Railroad tracks that are for like Metro, yeah. and freight tracks, and you can't go any farther. But rest, yeah, right. you have
0: really big tires. <laughs> exactly, <laughs>
1: exactly. But just once we cross over Cicero, mm-hmm. you'll see it over there. Cool. Uh, I have news to report about the power of the This Is Hell subvertising sticker, which is a cartoon bubble that says This Is Hell. For the last couple of months on my walk home past the corner Desi grocery store, Par Birdie, named that way because it's a block from one of the very few neighborhood golf courses in Chicago that most Chicagoans don't even realizes there, I've had to walk around this huge temporary street sign that is right in the middle of the sidewalk. The sign is on this kind of uh, wooden structure blocking sidewalk traffic right in front of the wheelchair accessible ramp, making it impossible to use. So people in a wheelchair, they have, they're forced to go around this gigantic sign that's in the middle of the sidewalk. So you have to walk around it, and you have to step down this curb in order to avoid the sign, which must be a nightmare for those who are in wheelchairs. The sign's on a wheelchair ramp, forcing people to go over a curb. Then, as if to mock everyone passing the sign, the big red sign has a single word in black on it that states, bump in all caps, of course. So it says bump, and then due to its placement, everyone has to step over a bump for no reason, as there is nothing wrong with the space the sign is covering is on top of, or blocking. It's it's been a useless obstacle in everyone's life walking down that block since August. Sure it was hilarious fist bumping people while walking around the bump sign. That was funny. But it was a nuisance, so last week, I decided that if this sign was going to be in my way every day, I was going to put a This Is Hell subvertising sticker on it, and I did. Despite that sign being unmoved since the summer, within 24 hours of placing a This Is Hell sticker on it, the sign was gone, which all means if there's something you want moved out of your neighborhood, Get yourself some This Is Hell advertising stickers by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon or by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support and then affix that sticker to whatever you don't want in your neighborhood anymore and for whatever reason, you put a This Is Hell sticker on it, the city will come by and take away whatever nuisance is in your life. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience.
0: This week's question from hell is here in the united states we have an upcoming election on tuesday november 8th whether you're in the states or not wherever you are whenever your next election is what do you fear is the worst possible outcome what
1: do you feel is the worst possible outcome in the next election you will or will not be participating in the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is how swag you want The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can see all, or you can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com/slash ThisIsHellRadio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at ThisIsHellRadio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth, this week's Moment of Truth will be live here in studio as Jeff is here in town joining us, and I hope that you will join Jeff and I at This Is Hell. Office hours this evening. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. The fireplace is cranking, so it will be comfortable to even be outside in the beer garden, despite it being 50 degrees. Also, I have one correction I have to make, and I guess I have to make this. I should have made this over and over yesterday. For whatever reason... I kept saying Saturday, October 30th was the election for the presidential election in Brazil. It's Sunday, October 30th. I don't know why I kept getting that wrong, but I did. So it's on Sunday, October 30th. Look for it this weekend. And you should follow Brian Mier M-I-E-R, on Twitter as well as friend him on Facebook because during times like this, uh, he's a great follow. Coming up. Sudip Bhattacharya on the suburbs. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, the question from hell is here in the U.S. We have an upcoming election on Tuesday, November 8th. Whether you are in the States or not, wherever you are, whenever your next election is, what do you fear is its worst possible outcome? We will also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com this is hell. And, and Jeff Dorchin will be delivering his moment of truth and we'll tell you what's happening next week here on This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity and talk radio. So clearly and sadly Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Since the explosion of the suburbs in the United States following soldiers returning from World War II they've been seen as a white enclave a place where whites would go to pursue the American dream of becoming middle class, no longer having to work with your hands, but engaged in labor that is more about the intellect. Once there, the middle class can attain greater and greater wealth and give their children the opportunities that they never had, a chance to obtain even greater wealth and class status. So what happens when those suburbs suddenly become racially and ethnically diverse? Here to help us understand why the more things change, The More Things Stay the Same, writer and organizer Sudip Bhattacharya posted the article, Socialism or Suburbia, at hardcrackers.com. Welcome to This is Hell, Sudip.
2: Hi, thanks for uh, having me.
1: It's great having you on the show. This is a fascinating article, and again... Uh, shout out to the people over at hardcrackers.com who've been contacting us lately about their website. Again, check out their website, hardcrackers.com. You mentioned Margot Jefferson writing in her book, Negro Land, which you describe as part memoir, part history of African Americans like herself who grew up, quote unquote, middle class in Chicago. Jefferson writes privilege is provisional, privilege can be denied, withheld, offered grudgingly, and summarily withdrawn. Keep a close watch. We recently had Cerise Castle on the show to discuss her award-winning 15-part investigation into deputy gangs within the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. That investigation is now a podcast by the same name, A Tradition of Violence. We also discussed the recent Los Angeles City Council scandals where several council members made repeated racist remarks during meetings and hearings on redistricting. Uh, Cerise linked that scandal to white supremacy and privilege. However, a listener contacted us saying that this was not about white supremacy, but identity politics. Can people of color, Sudeep, can people of color engage in white supremacy and privilege? And if so, how? After all, they are not white.
2: Yeah, great question. Um, Yes, I think, I mean, in this example, I believe the people talking were obviously uh, talking very negatively about a whole group of people, but of course, some of the worst comments were about Black folks, right? Um, and if you look at just a, I look at this as like a wider scope thing. So it's not necessarily the case that maybe a non-Black person of color is actively a vehicle in the moment for white supremacy, but the landscape we're in is shaped by that, right? Like the, the, um, the fact that we have these Uh, racialized terms, the fact that we have these very anti-Black sentiments, um, it was generated for those reasons, was generated to create these categories of whiteness, Blackness, and other. Um, So that's how I view it. But of course, I think it is also complicated with class situation and sort of colorism as well. So you have a whole host of different issues, but they do emerge from a history of settler colonialism and white supremacy and capitalism is how I look at it
1: if white supremacy and privilege have something to do with classism, why do we so often ignore the class struggle, but as so many people today are focusing on the white supremacy and privilege, if a, if a major part, a major component of white supremacy and privilege is classism, why do you think that that conversation about a class struggle, about class warfare is not happening in the United States today, and instead we have one of white supremacy and privilege?
2: Well, well, first of all, the way we're discussing white supremacy and privilege usually from what I gather from the most popular authors and people like that has a lot to do is very much, um, uh, driven by, uh, again, a, a kind of, um, individual level discourse or even systemic, but again, missing the material thing. So you have people talking about, and, you know, in some ways worthy ways of talking about the history of white supremacy, um, the history of racism against certain groups, etc. cetera, but still not really talking about things like land or resources. Um, but to answer your question directly, I think, the, I think the reason is kind of there is that for the last 30, 40 years, we don't have many radical labor unions. We have labor unions, but they're fairly um, moderate in some ways, the ones that survived. Um, and we also don't really have a left wing, right? That talks about class struggle in a complicated way, in a complex way. If you look at the history of the left wing in the United States at its peak um, in like the 1935 New Deal era, you had, say, Communist Party members going into labor unions and still having a conversation, of course, back then about race, class and gender. Now we kind of we don't have obviously a robust communist wing, but we also just don't have a robust left wing presence. We have the DSA. Like you mentioned, I'm a part of it and I am very grateful for it. But right now, it's stagnating, and it's, of course, not reaching the level it needs to be. So I think the answer for that has to do with material forces sort of lacking from the mainstream stage.
1: You write about going from living in the middle class, South Asian heavy enclaves of central New Jersey where I moved from Queens in 2000 at the age of 12. You mentioned one of your first memories living in the suburbs, being your father, having been pulled over by police for allowing another car to turn in front of him, and then being berated by the cop. You also describe how when I returned home from school on sunny days, I was excited to ride my bike amid the sprinklers still turning, swaying. I called my close friend, Faizan, who I'd known since moving to New Jersey. Faizan's parents would drop him off with his bike, and we'd ride through the surrounding neighborhood as our parents Talked inside our home, sharing some tea and gossip. We would drift past the other houses, the lush green lawns, the cars left to sparkle under the sunlight. I just love all this imagery of the suburbs. (laughs) Unlike Queens, we wouldn't have to worry about cars riding right up behind us or random people jumping us. We were safer here in many ways, and the air felt cleaner, too. I could breathe, and I extended my arms wide, feeling the air filtering between my fingers. Sometimes we'd see a white person staring at us after having returned from work briefcase in hand and laughter would fill our lungs what would cause you to laugh in response to that gaze what is it about that white gaze that you found hilarious
2: uh, i think if i'm looking back at myself at that age so again i was born raised in queens queens is a really wonderful place i think i still think it's the last bastion of of a working class slash middle class new york city i mean it's outer but I think of it as New York City. Um, And we had white Americans in our area, but it's weird when I used to think of them, um, I thought of them as white, but I also thought of them as maybe Italian or Irish. Um, And I just wanna say like, still it was very segregated. So most of my friends were South Asian still, some black, some Hispanic. Um, But by the time we moved into uh, the suburbs, into central New Jersey specifically, it was really the first time that I saw like quote unquote white people and or people I conceived as white as I would have seen in the sitcom. So like, I I still think of the time when I was watching, you know, different shows with my parents and grandparents, we lived in a big household together before we moved. And then when we moved, I really did feel like I was in a sitcom. Uh, I did feel like, wow, I never actually knew I could live in a place like this. And I guess the the gaze that I felt uh, you know, and the way I was like responding was almost like joy in the fact that I'm here, you know, and that there's really nothing that this person could have done to prevent that really. And I was just sort of happier to be on. I was actually very excited to move to the suburbs, to be really honest with you. I was really young and I was kind of getting tired of like riding my bike and frankly, worrying about traffic and other things. And, when we moved in the suburbs I was actually really excited so that also came from a place of real joy and obviously that's like a very dramatic example but I remember the first couple of years really like you know embracing living there in some extent and I was really young right and this is like a year later of course would be 9-11 and that would change a lot for us but in the time being I was just feeling grateful and I was kind of taking delight in the fact that I was actually here and Uh, I was not necessarily in a lily white suburb either. I was actually with other South Asian Americans. So there was a lot of also like pleasant surprises, so to speak.
1: And we'll get back to that sense of safety in the suburbs in a moment. But you write, as you were just saying, you moved to an area, a suburb that was very ethnically diverse. It was very much like you. Uh, And you write that since the 2000s, the Burbs, quintessential pockets of the American dream, have become increasingly racially and ethnically diverse. In my family's part of New Jersey, some suburban towns have become predominantly non-white and mainly Asian, such as Edison, where the streets are lined Mm. with sari shops and H-marts. And Interestingly, I'd rarely see East Asians and South Asians mix. We still retained our own communities uh, blocks away from one another. There were definitely more white people than what I'd been used to, having spent the first years of my life in the city. But again, we had our temples and mosques, our stores, our slices of the neighborhood, which proved useful following the racist backlash attendant to the attacks on 9-11. There were entire days when many of us Never had to interact with someone white, especially over the weekend. So are suburbs, in your experience, both increasingly racially and ethnically diverse, but still segregated to some extent from the white community? Are they both more and more diverse and segregated?
2: Yeah, so um, I think I mentioned this in the piece, or maybe I (laughs) forgot about it, but there was um, a study I saw at Brookings um, where they mentioned since the 1990s, um, roughly two out of 10 suburbanites were people of color. This rose to 30% by 2000, and now by 2020, it was 45%. So this is happening everywhere where you have more people of color having moved into different suburbs. I mean, partly it's kind of ironic. Some of it has to do with the fact that cities are getting more and more expensive to live. So it's uh, people are sort of spilling out because uh, they have no choice. Um, But regardless, yes, I mean, I do think when I was also growing up in East Brunswick, I think right now the percentage of non-white, so Edison, New Jersey, as you mentioned, I think is predominantly, or the plurality, I think upwards of 48% is Asian American, with a large percentage Indian and Korean American, and that's Edison, New Jersey. That's where that's kind of in my backyard. We'd always go there to shop for groceries. It was like a 20-minute drive. Of course, it turned into like a 50-minute drive because of traffic which is a problem of the suburbs, right? It's not really designed for easy maneuver. That's one thing I really miss about living in the city. But, um, but yeah, it was very diverse. The place I was wasn't necessarily um, plurality Asian-American. I, th- I think right now it's 55% white, East Brunswick, but it's around 35% Asian-American. It has um, also Hispanic-American and has Arab-American. So yeah, so there- therefore uh, racial and ethnic diversity has really increased. But to your other point, I also think there is some still segregated neighborhoods, of course, within a community. And it's not only just between whites and non-whites necessarily. I mean, I think that is a big part of it. I think white Americans in total are usually uh, less likely to live in any kind of diverse setting. They're more likely, even New Jersey, to live in very, very heavily white communities, uh, which produces a lot of paranoia, a lot of like insistence on a certain politics. In fact, a lot of the um, January 6th uh, insurrectionists, a lot of them were actually from New Jersey. Um, they weren't from the South. So that explains a little bit of that, what I mean. But um, but even within people of color, you can find, uh, you know, like it's not, you know, vicious or anything, but it's still a problem where you don't necessarily have communities mixing with each other. As you mentioned, the line I wrote, different mosques, different temples, there's religious, you know, religious groups forming. There's also uh, just... Just, you know, you have your own like neck of the woods as a Bengali American, for example. I have lots of friends who are, I'm Indian American, but my parents are from West Bengal, a part of India. Uh, I myself feel like I'm an outlier. I have friends who are Indian American from different groups. But growing up, I used to see that a lot of, even among Indian Americans, they would stay within their own ethnic group because of how their parents were raising them and different things. So that still happens. And I think that's still a very American thing, right? The segregation, the fact that we don't have, again, back to what I said before, we don't have a left-wing presence that can pull people together. And we don't really have, especially in the suburbs, community areas, right? We have the shopping mall still relatively, we have religious sections, we have the downtown maybe, but in terms of really having spaces where people can mix, that's kind of lacking and that still plays a role in then having people stay in their pocket, even among different groups of people of color.
1: So is the segregation then, is it driven by uh, culture here in the United States, society here in the United States, or is it something that is brought here to the United States by, by South Asians, for instance, a friend of mine uh, who is Gujarat, she told me that if she goes into certain stores here on Devon Avenue, which is a predominantly mm-hmm. uh, Desi neighborhood, uh, if she goes into certain stores, the people who are Indian in those stores who are not Gujarat will, she says, will give them a really di- give her a really dirty look. So, are these uh, is this kind of segregation something that is? caused by American culture, exacerbated by American culture, reinforced by American culture, but brought over from South Asia?
2: Well, in terms of South Asians, I think it's a mix of both. I mean, I've never had that experience. So again, Edison and Islin, I talk about because they're very, very big hubs of South Asian Americans. And in Edison, you will find various kind of stores, businesses side by side. So Indian owned restaurants, Pakistani owned sweet shops, Afghan owned meat markets. Um, I myself have not really felt that kind of, you know, I don't know how to describe it, that sort of a grudge or some kind of look that a person would give me. But I do think at some point, yes, you bring some of that with you maybe, but I do think it's also just how the suburbs are constructed, to be really honest. Because even in India, you know, where my parents are from, they, they were originally from West Bengal, but they lived in Pune, which is a very metropolitan city on the West Coast-ish side of India. And there, they still obviously hung out with Bengali folks because they spoke similar language, but they also spoke English. But they did have some people from outside the community mixed with them. Um, but here, you know, where we live, Uh, We were fortunate now to be living in an area where you do have a very diverse set of Indian-Americans. So we actually live in an area where you have, um, I believe, South Indian, some Gujarati-American, and others. So that's a luck. But I do think overall the American situation with the suburbs uh, really forces you to stay in your zone. Because, again, if you are someone who is maybe Hindu-American – You will go to a temple where the language you're familiar with is spoken, and most likely that's going to mean you're going to be among other Bengalis or South Indians and so forth. Um, So I think it's a mix, but I do think the uh, the way that the suburbs are created, the way in which our society right now under neoliberalism really lacks any other alternative besides religion or consumerism to really identify with different people sometimes. I think, like you said, that exacerbates these sorts of of tensions or rather lack of communication, right? Because I don't think it's gonna raise to the level of people fighting each other, but it it is a problem when you think about political coalitions or people at least organizing together. But again, if you look at Queens, and this is why I'm still very fond of the place, you still find a lot, like where I grew up, I grew up in an area that was very mixed uh, in terms of South Asians. Like that was an area where, I didn't actually meet many Gujarati Americans, but I met South Indians, Pakistanis and other, well, we're Bengali Indian, but Bangladeshis as well. So it, so it really depends. But Queens is a more of um, it's residential, but it's city-like. In the suburbs, it totally flipped, right? So again, I do think the structure of the suburbs really exacerbates that sort of limited connection between different groups of South Asians.
1: We, I have been using the phrase "American Dream." We'll be using the the phrase "the American Dream" throughout this conversation. But you, but that that phrase can be problematic. Uh, there's the def, definition of it as the belief that anyone, regardless of where they were born or what class they were born into, can attain their own version of success. There's the more materialist definition, if you will. That is a set of ideals in which freedom includes the opportunity for prosperity and success as well as an upward social mobility for the family and children achieved through hard work in a society with few barriers. And there's this. The phrase American Dream was often used by progressive era reformers of the 1900s. Rather than exalting the pursuit of wealth, they sought to tame monopoly capitalism and protect workers and communities from robber barons. This concept was popularized by writer and historian, uh, historian James Truslow Adams in his best selling 1931 book. Epic of America, Adams described the American Dream as, quote, that dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement. So, what does the American Dream uh, mean? I mean, because for people who are South Asian, for people who are living in the suburbs, because it seems to vary from freedom to wealth to an almost socialist dream. What is the American dream that a more diverse population is pursuing when moving from the city to the suburbs as your family did?
2: Yeah, so I think for us, part of the American dream was having access to uh, better public education. That's one thing. Um having access to so we did live in a house together, but it was a big, big household. Like that's another thing. I think a lot of Asian Americans um live in households where you have multiple generations living with you. Um, so we had a house, but we wanted to have uh my parents and I wanted to have a space where you can have maybe more um more ability just to roam around. There was definitely more space in the suburbs, right? There was um where we lived, our house was you know decent, but the big thing for us was now we have a real like lawn, a real backyard. We had uh, certain amenities that you didn't have to like sort of travel across traffic for. So you had a local park with actually tennis courts. You had a swimming pool. Um, it was a sort of like picturesque dream in that sense. So to me, I think for some families, it's about you know attaining what you see, what you what you've seen on the brochures when you're coming here, or what you've seen on TV, which is Access to an education, access to a home, access to other amenities, uh, access to more shopping—even to some some degree. Um, yeah, I think that's a, that's how I remember thinking about it for myself as well. Even as a kid, like I mentioned, uh, I was really excited to move because I wanted the things that I saw uh, on a stupid sitcom. Um, but of course, beneath all of it is this sort of, you know. Uh, how you know, do how to, to expand like a bargain that I think right now the middle class, even middle class people of color, are realizing was a, let me some of us have realized is a bargain that shouldn't have never made, been made um, because the problems of capitalism are sort of superseding whatever we think about the American dream right now.
1: So, do you think neoliberalism then is an attack on the American dream? After all, many of the things that you were just talking about, public education, you know, access to better health care, access to cleaner air. That would all suggest a response that is very not neoliberal. That would suggest that what you were looking for, what you were trying to attain, were things that were nearly, you know, almost socialist. It's things that were within the public domain, things that were for the common good. So is neoliberalism then an attack on the American dream that your family was pursuing?
2: Yeah, in a way. I mean, I think neoliberalism... The way I wrote the piece and the way I've been thinking about it is really about, so like, it's gonna be, I'm sorry for this, but uh, like a longer answer, I guess, is that when the middle class was being forged truly in the forties and fifties and it, it being forged in the, being forged in the suburbs, uh, the gist of it for US policymakers, and people can find this in, I think, Kenneth Grabgrass's book, uh, Kenneth Jackson's book, Crabgrass Frontier, which I highly recommend, Uh, The purpose of it, obviously, was to create a constituency, to develop a group of people who would be very linked to protecting the American dream, which is a very capitalist dream still, right? Because you're still talking about people who are not being unionized as much anymore. You're still talking about people thinking about themselves, really, as individual owners of property. Um, You still think of themselves as superior to other groups of people and rationalizing why they're ahead. Uh, as somehow some sort of meritocratic thing, right? Um, So that's just one thing to mention, because I think in the end, neoliberalism, yes, it definitely is eroding the American dream, however limited it was for middle-class people. But I think the bigger problem is just capitalism itself. Capitalism itself will always try to find ways to make more profit and... Of course, at the beginning of neoliberalism, this meant moving factories out of these urban zones, which were mostly labor-heavy, actually. And um, Mike Davis, you know, the famous uh, writer and activist, he passed away recently, I think yesterday. Uh, One of his books, The Prisoners of the American Dream, talks about this. Like, a lot of the companies were, quote-unquote, fleeing areas that were labor-heavy, and they went into the Sun Belt or went into nearby suburbs with this idea that they can also then build on this rising middle class. But in the end, what's happening now in the suburbs is that bargain, that dream itself was always sort of a lie, right? So again, neoliberalism is, search- is certainly accelerating that lie. It's like, you know, like you mentioned, there really isn't any room for public resources often due to neoliberalism. But capitalism itself would have, is is the bigger thing that's eating away at the American dream itself, or whatever way it was conceived, So in my mind, I think about it as it's not just neoliberalism, it's capitalism overall. And what people are being affected by right now is the bargain that was made. Like Now we're looking at uh, the suburbs seeing a rise in poverty. Because of capitalism, you have high developers going into cities, causing people to move out. And you also have in suburbs, uh, I forgot who mentioned this, but in the suburbs, it's not just people spilling out. It's that literally now, instead of these sort of white-collar Uh, industries, you're finding more warehouses, like Amazon warehouses, right? Like where I live currently around Monroe, which is still in central New Jersey, or where my parents live, uh, it's just a stretch of warehouses. And that's in the suburbs. It's not in any city. New Brunswick, obviously, is the closest city. It's literally in my neck of the woods. So if you're actually moving to the suburbs, you're no longer moving into a larger home. You still might get a home, but you're also going to be working in a low-wage field, So in my mind, these are like bigger issues having to do with how capitalism is always going to be seeking out ways to generate a profit. And now it's happening at the expense of the middle class or people they thought themselves as middle class and not as workers.
1: And again, Mike Davis did pass away yesterday, which is a real shame. Uh, Mike was a, a supporter of our show from the very beginning. I really appreciated all of his support. Uh, he'd been on our show several times and I think that we've already shared some of those interviews, if not all of them, on Patreon already. If we do have any from our archives that we have not shared recently, we will be doing that very soon. So, so why don't we recognize this contradiction between capitalism and the American dream? Why do we think the American dream part, is a capitalist dream when in fact it would seem like, from what you were just describing, The two contradict each
3: other.
2: Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, I think, again, back to the response I gave a few moments ago, I think part of it has to do with. Well, let me backtrack. I do think more people are recognizing some of this. This is kind of what I mentioned in the piece as well, and something I've seen like um, I'm part of the DSA. Right. Uh, I have critiques of the DSA, but I'm part of it. and. My parents also, I just want to add, they they came from West Bengal, which is um, has a long history of the Communist Party. So I was never really fearful of those words, uh, but nonetheless, I I was like an Obama liberal, pretty much um, when he won. So now I'm back to my roots, I guess. But I'm downwardly mobile, right? And I think a lot of my friends who are people of color are in the same position as I am. So we're like middle-class kids, but are living at the tail end of even that illusion, you know, like we're seeing the bones of it. We're actually, it's almost like a heavy rain was falling for a long time. And now we're still, now we're realizing that underneath this facade of a home, under this, you know, this facade that our parents told us, like you can go to a a good school, get a degree, and as a person of color, at least start to build a future is kind of a mirage. Um, I think that's pushing some people actually to the left um, you can see this in polling. So I'm not suggesting that there's no change in thinking, but to your point, there's still a, it would be also ridiculous for me to suggest we're in a revolutionary moment because there's still a lot of people who may not agree, obviously, with a status quo. A lot of people are frustrated. A lot of people of color are clearly frustrated, but don't really, yeah, understand the contradictions between what they were led to believe, what actually needs to happen, which is more public resources, more unions, more progressive unions, socialism in the end. Like you can't run a society where housing is housing is a market. You just can't. You know, in that sense, some people are going to be made to be homeless so housing prices and all these things are kept a certain way. So you need these things to be socialized. But um I think the problem there, that next step is again back to what I said earlier, the DSA grew, it was the it was a group that was growing really fast after Bernie, his two runs, but it stagnated. Um, the Democratic Party itself has a somewhat progressive part of it, but that group has also stagnated, right? And also at the end of the day, we're living in a time of great instability, whether people feel it materially or not. Um, some people might actually be in a good position in life, but look outside and are worried about what's going to happen. So. I think with all these factors sort of intertwined there it's difficult for people to not feel overwhelmed and hence why why people have always needed some kind of left wing orb or left wing party independent of both the parties to really push forward that analysis. So again with the people that I'm thinking about even some of my friends, you know, I've pushed them and they've pushed me, but I really do think if I or them never met other people or at that time, more left-wing than us, we never would have changed, right? So there needs to be people also going ahead, challenging others on what they believe, challenging others on this insistence that the American dream was a good idea, right? You, like that somehow it was a, an achievable goal long-term under capital. I don't think people will just arrive at that on their own. Like me, I need other people, even someone like me who has that background. I need other people in organizing spaces to push me, and I think that's what's still missing unfortunately.
1: We are speaking with writer and organizer Sudip Bhattacharya, who posted the article, Socialism or Suburbia, at hardcrackers.com. You write, as Marx would have said, the suburbs work to mystify reality. The fact is, despite some of the material advantages my parents and others I knew growing up had, compared to our counterparts in Queens, we were still having to work and exist in a society that required payment to live. Yes, we had pensions. Yes, we had lawns and driveways. Yes, we had the employer possibly attending the same mosques or temples as us willing to shake hands with people donating for another wing to someday be added i still think back to when my dad's boss also desi appeared one day at the local temple and how the men rushed to him smiling wide laughing at everything he said still you're dependent on said boss for having that connection to the good life as presented in movies and shows so what do the suburbs obscure from reality what do they keep us from recognizing or understanding about the american dream and its pursuit
2: yeah so um that slice of the suburbs that i'm speaking to the slice of it that is so again just like with the term middle class it really explains how to explain it it doesn't explain a lot sometimes like even the middle class you can be a worker even though you're white collar or be a business owner And in the suburbs, the slice that I'm talking about, what's being obscured is really how much, you know, how much you can really fall in an instant, you know, especially again, I'm speaking to people who are white collar workers, people like my dad and other people like him who are still working for a wage, who are still compelled to depend on a job for their pension, who are still, you know, having to really depend on their boss, right, period. Uh, for some, for the life we actually have, right? For the ability to live in the suburbs. Um, but that's obscured based on these material factors, right? Like it's based, you know, you have the pension, you have the cubicle, you, you mentioned earlier in your intro, you also have like a different kind of work that might obscure the fact that you're doing labor. Like it's more quote unquote mental. Uh, my dad's an engineer, so he has to go to job sites and stuff. And he really, you know, there's a lot of like activity in that, but still just generally, you know, you're not having to stand at a counter. You're not having to feel, you know, your your legs ache, the sweat down your body. Like, you're, there's a lot of, like, material things that feed into this idea that you're special, right? Um, so I think those are the ways that obscure at the base reality, though, that you're still working. And if you lost your job, uh, especially since the 1990s under Clinton, who was basically Reagan 2.0, you don't really have... A social safety net to fall on. You might have it for a limited amount of time, but all those things that you may have thought about other people, and this is just from the middle class perspective, people of color who are quote unquote lazy or who need welfare, guess what? So do you. And guess what? Those changes that were made to their lifestyle, you know, and the changes that were made to basically what they needed, even as they're working multiple jobs, those things are going to affect you too. So I think that's what's obscure. This the the reality of what's there as a worker and also the connection we still have with our contemporaries in cities or frankly in other slices of the suburb where you see poverty rising i think that's what happens you know it obscures those kind of really important dialogues and you know uh connections that need to be made
1: so is the american dream then a pursuit or is the pursuit of the american dream a pursuit of privilege? And if so, privilege, you know, suggests inequality. So does pursuit of the American dream and its privilege fuel inequality? Do the suburbs fuel even a sense of superiority, no matter your ethnicity or race, Uh, reinforcing some idea that the people who live there are, in fact, better people or conversely, that the people who live within the cities are worse people? Is the American dream a pursuit of privilege leading to inequality?
2: Yes. (laughs) Um, the American dream under capitalism, you can have different kinds of dreams. I know people talk about the Chinese dream. I think China is trying to portray its own version of it. But the American dream under capitalism is a pursuit of amenities under capitalism, which at its onset was meant to actually keep it together, right? Again, you're, you're being sort of told you need to pursue some kind of property. You're being told that you're no longer a working class. I mean, I know that term is even under Marx, sometimes it was a little iffy, but you know, when I teach my students, I tell them like, when you think about class, it's not like race or gender where things really sort of evolve or change over time. Class is like an objective category. Your class depends on your relationship for the core of what you do with the means of production. Or like I just said, if you're working, right, and your main source of income is by working for a boss, for a manager, you're a worker, right? But the American dream was built to suggest to certain people that you're no longer a worker, only you're better than that. You're middle class, which is a category that is really objectively meaningless in that sense, other than being able to cultivate a kind of thinking where you can kind of mobilize people towards politics that might actually long-term not benefit them, right? So so yeah, it is a very much like the American dream as a phrasing as a concept, is very much wedded to, to basically uh, sustaining the things as they are, which means creating and maintaining inequalities, right? So again, uh, when I wrote this piece, I am not suggesting that people of color who are part of the middle class are just turning into exactly as white middle class people are. Like that's that's different. Like when the when the suburbs first quote unquote opened up, the white folks who did move in were vociferously uh, anti-communist and, uh, and and very racist towards mostly uh, Black folks, but in some parts of the country towards uh, Mexican and uh, Asian American too. I'm not suggesting that's a one-to-one what's going on here. Um, I still think most people of color, just because of how gross the GOP is and how explicitly racist it is, uh, most people of color, even in the suburbs, not all, will still lean towards Democrat. But what I think is actually... consistency is in the end even if they're voting democrat and they're believing in the american as long as they're believing in the american dream they're still then narrowing their political horizons you know instead of maybe being right-wing rabid supporters of trump they might be center left-ish or center right-ish within the democratic party and it still cultivates a sense of self that is really you know anti-socialist or anti-egalitarian right again it can be progressive but there's a limit to it. And that's what I fear happening sometimes. You know, you're know, you seeing a lot more suburbanites voting Democrat, but I do fear as long as we don't tackle these sort of discussions and these sort of thinking, we're gonna have a constituency that might lean within the Democratic Party still relatively conservative or somewhat liberal, but nonetheless, uh, not seeing their connection with other groups of color in different quote unquote class uh, positions.
1: I found that really fascinating in your writing as well, uh, this idea that uh, the suburbs are a kind of class project separating white and blue-collar workers and intentionally undermining worker solidarity. I found that really interesting. But you also write that with more people of color caught in the sprawl, the suburban sprawl, however, it means more people are susceptible to feelings of difference and distance from others who ultimately share some common interests but happen to wear a uniform all day or attend a religious different religious site at the end. Uh, you, uh, but as we were talking about before, uh, it's when it comes to moving to the suburbs, it's often driven by a desire for safety. So people want to move to the burbs so they'll have a relative sense of safety living there from what they lived or experienced within more urban areas, more of a city setting. Does a focus on and desire for safety over all else, lead to exacerbating that sense of difference and distance. Is does the fear does fear, which leads to a desire for safety, lead to that distance and difference between the suburbs and the city?
2: That's that, Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so right now, I'm preparing for a class. I, I teach a couple of classes now. One of which is about is focused on Asian American politics. And um, some of the articles I gave my students had to do with Asian American voting patterns right now. And again, most Asian Americans registered are actually uh, resoundingly Democrat, but there's still a percentage that's not. And this is registered voters. Um, But there's an article that I was just reading right before uh, this interview for the class where they mentioned those terms, actually. Like, there's a fear that some Democrats are going to, I'm sorry, some Asian Americans are not going to rush to the Republicans because of just how, again, how explicitly racist they are I say explicit because Reagan may not have been always explicit but he you know Trump is an outgrowth of him uh you know it's Trump is a is American it's you know apple pie I guess racist apple pie but um so so that being said but some of the things you talked about like there is a still a, a so right now there's like you know defund the police was a huge thing and right now there's sort of a I wouldn't say a backlash but there's certainly like Anxieties among people of color about uh, safety and "quote unquote" crime. Where I live, there have been issues around uh, safety and crime, um, and usually, again, it's um, it's hard to disentangle because you want people to feel safe, right? Like, you know, you don't want to tell people, "Hey, just deal with it." You know, like what's happening around your corner. I know you you mentioned a few episodes ago someone had been attacked at their store, right? You don't want to tell people. Uh, just forget it. Like you, what you're feeling is not real at that moment. Um, but you do need to remind people overall and build in su- some kind of campaign where really they can understand that, listen, your, your need for safety is important, but safety is more than just separating yourself from other people, right? If safety is just being defined as that, then it's going to be a problem. Maybe then some people will vote for a really extreme Republicans. But right now, the Democratic leadership is pretty right-wing, so I don't think they'll do that. But nonetheless, they'll shift in that direction because of how safety is being reconceived. But in my mind, if safety is really about, you know, broader things than that, and this is something that the New Deal had done kind of well, um, which was, was talking about safety as economic security, safety as, you know, something that also requires some kind of unity, right? These things... Can be reinforced in a different way, right? It doesn't have to be just about separating yourself. But if if safety is only about, like you mentioned, people leaving, fleeing the city, or fleeing other suburbs, frankly, and saying, I'm, you know, I'm one of the, the quote unquote good ones, I'm one of the deserving few. I will vote Democrat, but I don't like these other policies. That's I can see that as being an issue. I guess for me, writing this piece is because I saw in the last election there was this sort of excitement over suburban voters who are technically independent, but that's kind of a lie because everyone is either Republican or Democrat, really. And I was worried about that because I know that also with that convergence was a convergence of the idea that people of color are shifting leftward. So that's why I wrote this piece, like with that mindset of like, listen, certainly right now in the context we're in with Trump still being the head of the party, a lot more people are going to vote Democrat. But as long as these other concerns are there, It can definitely shift in other directions that we don't want, which includes, like, feeling superior or feeling more deserving than your contemporary or your counterpart, who you, quote-unquote, left behind.
1: You also write that, of course, most people of color, regardless of social position, have been trending Democrat, including most Asians and Latinos. But voting Democrat doesn't suggest sharing progressive views, especially economically. In New Jersey, where there is a growing population of South Asians, a critical constituency in many parts of the state, more establishment type politicians within the party have continued to hold onto their seats or passed it on to the trusted neoliberal few. Is what is known as being economically conservative or fiscally conservative while being socially liberal common among people in the suburbs, including what you experienced in the, the, your South Asian suburb? Is that belief in being economically conservative and social, socially liberal, is that an outcome of the suburbs?
2: Yeah, I. it's very interesting. So, you know... <laughs> How I answer this might be frustrating, but again, I'm a doctoral candidate in political science. I try to think in terms of not making grand assumptions, but there is a segment certainly of people in say parts of New Jersey where I'm from that might really hate the GOP. That's definitely something that's both anecdotal and something you can see like Indian Americans, I'm Indian American, are the biggest supporters of the Democrats by far, like among Asians. It's one of the reasons why Asians still lean Democrat Um, And also, if you look at other um, articles about this new uprise in terms of uh, socialists in the Northeast, a lot of it has to do with South Asians broadly, Indian Americans included. So there's that. But there's also a slice of the suburbs. And that's why I use that term in in the essay, slice of it, where where people could be thinking like, yes, I am a middle class person. Again, that term is very vacuous. So let's just say someone who is a quote-unquote, small business owner. You know, if you're, if you're a small business owner in New Jersey, which is dominated by the Democrats, which I'm, you know, better than the Republicans, frankly, uh, you're going to have to work then within the Democratic machine to get your perks, right? To get even maybe like a local mayor to show up at your ribbon cutting for your second store. So that's how I conceive of it still. And then those people become community leaders in a sense, because they're able to donate money and signal to other people who to vote for. Right? And they're going to signal to people, hey, vote for this Democrat, who is the Biden Democrat versus someone who might be a latecomer to the race, who might not even be on the ballot just yet. So that's the way I worry about it. And that's why I use New Jersey as an example. New Jersey, to me, and California represent this politics. Like you will have Democrats winning elections, maybe. you know, I know the rest of the country is very gerrymandered, but let's just say winning certain elections more likely because they have a person of color constituency with some white folks, too. But nonetheless, that doesn't really get rid of these internal tensions. You know, gender, for one, right? And also, of course, class, right? Just having Democrats get elected does not suggest to you uh, what exactly they stand for economically. So the governor of our state, Phil Murphy, he's relatively progressive. I think the nation mentioned him as the most progressive when he first won, and I was glad. But, you know, he's not really, he's not like and AOC even, or Bernie, uh, he's kind of in the middle of the road. He still talks about business a lot. If you look at his campaigning, he went to a lot of different business owners, which was nice. You know, the Republican, I don't think, did that. Uh, but nonetheless, this included people who are South Asian, Hispanic, etc. Um, but in, then in terms of white-collar workers, I'm actually not so sure. What I'm suggesting in the piece, though, is that there's no inevitability in any of this. As we saw with the uprisings, too. Two years ago, there was this sort of like outpouring of anger, which was real, but then that dissipated and that got captured by the Democrats because there was no real left wing alternative that was siphoning off that energy, developing people's energy, etc. That's what I think will happen with Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans in these suburbs. You'll find instances where they'll still vote Democrat and will not be moved and may actually be leaning left on economic issues, too. That's actually still a thing. But in terms of who they vote for, I mean, you know, again, are people really looking at down ballot elections? Are really are they going to look past the D next to someone's name? In New Jersey, there's no opposition to the Democrats other than the Republicans who are, you know, extremely right wing. So I do fear that with the Democrats sort of winning, all these other issues that need to be attended to will sort of fall to the background until maybe it's too late. And then we'll see even weirder sort of amalgamations of politics and political coalitions.
1: You quote the historian David Roediger, uh, explaining, because being a middle class involves a set of unrealistic expectations of improvement of living standards across generations, of putting kids through college without debt, of a dignified retirement, of balancing labor and leisure, life in the middle class has come to seem not only Less desirable, but more and more impossible. What happened to make it so? We must give up that life-work balance if we want to be middle class. What made being middle class less desirable?
2: Well, I think um, it's just the material life. Like, I mean, I'll just talk about my own experience. Like, I grew up middle class. I did. I mean, I still want to live, like you said, safely. That's why I was trying to redefine it differently I think that's fine but it I just think already just to maintain the bare minimum takes a lot of energy for a lot of us I'm like a millennial you know a lot of my friends are millennial and it takes a lot of energy just to sustain enough to pay rent uh, in the suburbs but maybe living in the building like I am uh, it takes still a lot to sustain groceries a healthy diet you know all these things that other podcasts tell us we need to do: have your eight hours of sleep, eat your apples. Like, you know, it, it takes a lot of energy to maintain the car payment, to maintain uh, the student loan payments that you're still working on because people told you that you needed to have this education to maintain. And in some cases, you you still are benefiting from that. And I also just want to add: I think it's a, the answers to this should be: everyone needs to have universal access to education everyone deserves a chance to the liberal arts frankly it's not the opposite i really hate when people suggest like some people are just made for you know this kind of work no even if you're going to end up working and fixing cars um, you still deserve a chance to read classics or different kind of literature right but anyway life is just like i said before the capitalist bargain that was made in the 60s and 70s and later in the 80s of course that you can just compete your neighbor to get that house. You can uh, com- out-compete others for that, you know, extra uh, paycheck or, you know, gift at your job. Those are proving to be, you know, materially uh, just not what they were 20, 30 years ago. Like, you really can't maintain it. And same, and same thing with the middle class. When I look about, when I think about maintaining, being part of the middle class, living in the places I used to live, like in the core where you can still see the nice lawns and houses. Um, I want that, I'm just being really honest, like a part of me is very nostalgic for it because you have space, you 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 have this illusion, sort of a comforting tale about uplift. But sometimes I'm just like, I'm just baffled at how I could even achieve it. you know. And that's because materially, my body is slowly being eroded over time just so I can maintain what little I have now. Right. And this is very generational, like not suggesting there aren't any older folks dealing with it. We're seeing a lot of older folks having to return to the workforce. You know, there's no retirement plan for some people. But I guess the frustration with even being middle class is you're feeling it. You're feeling the tension in your body that you have to work. Like I wrote another piece for Protein that you mentioned where me and my partner actually went ahead and did, uh, I think, DoorDash. I, I think DoorDash for a little bit. And that was like, you know, some people really need to do it. Um, but we it was just maddening. Like we were doing this for extra every dollar we can stretch. And at the long term, we're like thinking to ourselves, like tired from like a couple of rides, thinking like, how is this like for us to even then move into a different neighborhood, we have to do this for so much more. We just, you know, we're just human. It's impossible. So I think that's one of the things that's kind of, like I said, the heavy rain that's falling, I think that's one of the reasons why you see more younger people uh, sort of moving away from, from this illusion at some point in their lives.
1: Of course, uh, you, you know it just it's impossible to be economically conservative and socially liberal because they are contradictory in that economic conservatism would undermine the funding of social liberalism, defunding social services while putting more of a tax burden on the poor. You mentioned Marx and the idea of how the suburbs mystify reality. Does that mystifying of reality obscure the contradiction of somehow holding both economically conservative and socially liberal beliefs that the economic and social are woven together and one has an effect on the other that what we support about the economy, uh, it has an impact on society. Is that being recognized and that may not be or that may be one of the reasons that, the middle class is losing its desirability, that people are finally recognizing that the economic and the social are woven together and are, do not live in a vacuum from one another?
2: I think so. I mean, if you look at some surveys, uh, there are more people now, I think millennials especially, um, who, are, who are describing themselves as working class. And again, I just want to reiterate that. Um, the middle class is really not objectively speaking a class because in that bucket you can have workers who are well more well off than blue collar uh but you can also have small business on like stan island or i call cop island honestly um you have people who may view themselves as also middle class but are like construction uh well owners of small construction businesses and some workers too right but um but i do think you know, if you look at some surveys, there's more people suggesting that they are working class, you know, based on the popular construction of it, which is a positive. Like, they're re- realizing that in the end, this, uh, this American dream, this American illusion nightmare was very much limited. Like, right now, we're in a position in American politics where there really isn't a new horizon within capital. Like, the New Deal was still very much saving capitalism. And I still believe it was a positive thing considering how badly in shape the country was. And you know, across the world, a lot of people took this social Democrat kind of lean and that's great, you know. But now there really isn't that happening. Like you, you know, the Senate is very stuck in its ways. Even, you know, really subpar New Deal kind of legislation is not working out. Uh, so clearly the horizon needs to be reset. And I think at the bare minimum, People are realizing too, because the because of the position is so bad that, yeah, they are workers or that they have to depend on the job, and that's kind of moving things. But I do want to add one thing too. Um, I think you you can actually see the socially liberal, economically conservative, uh, positionality being not working out for people rationally for some. Also in how again, people of color in the middle class vote. So again, middle, middle class people of color, people of color generally are leaning still towards the depths. Um, they still lean towards Democrats um, and they actually lean center left on policy issues economically. Actually among Asian Americans, um, a lot of folks actually want uh, the Bernie plan pretty much. In, in California, uh, the majority of Asian Americans voted for Bernie. AOC's district is an area that's heavily Asian. Um, so that's happening. But I, what I think is really also holding back people from taking that next step from just voting Democrats to really thinking about which Democrat has a lot to do with the GOP, ironically, and the messaging there. Because obviously the GOP is nothing more than a shell of like nihilism and white nationalism and uber capitalism. Like, you know, there's nothing there. Like we're having so many versions of it coming through, which are pretty much worse and worse and worse. Um, And the thing that I've heard anecdotally from people, when I bring up Bernie, they like Bernie. Even some people in the middle class who are workers, by the way, this is why I was trying to disentangle that. So white collar workers. Um, But they then say things like, you know, well, if I vote for someone like, not Bernie, I think some did, like I said, but vote for somebody I've never heard of, who's having such an issue getting on the ballot because of the Democratic Party pushing them off, they're gonna what if they win and then the GOP wins like their main their main conundrum is the GOP looming over them and winning and then taking power like the, like your um, your question you had for the audience, what's the worst outcome? I think for a lot of people of color who are also middle class, the worst outcome is the GOP as it is right now nationally, right maybe not locally, but people think in national terms. So I think that's also like showing you that illusion is breaking breaking apart but nonetheless, there are ways in which that energy doesn't go forward because of these other things that are really holding off people's political horizon. Like, oh, if you vote for this candidate, as maybe Murphy would say, or someone else might say, this Democrat who's never been proven or even independent left-wing candidate, they're going to lose, you know, in the general. And they're going to lose for those reasons of, like, crime. They're defund the police. Like, Democrats do it a lot, too. They're like, this guy's defund. He's going to ruin people. And so... That's the main issue I also see. Like you have energy there, but it's getting like weirdly interpreted. And again, my worry is that's going to be captured or uh, misaligned in a way that doesn't work out for people long term.
1: One last question for you, Sudip. We have been speaking with writer and organizer Sudip Bhattacharya, who posted the article Socialism or Suburbia at Hardcrackers.com. You can find his other work at outlets like Protean Magazine, Counterpunch, Reappropriate, and the Aerogram, where he is a staff writer. You can follow him on Twitter at ResistRun. One last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, (laughs) our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask you, might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. And I uh, truly appreciate and thank you uh, for all the support that you have given and shown towards This Is Hell. Uh, But Sudip, we began this conversation by talking about whether the LA City Council scandal was about white supremacy or whether it was about identity politics. So I wanted to close on a question about identity politics. Britain's conservative party has chosen Liz Truss's replacement as prime minister after she resigned, ending the shortest run as prime minister in Britain's history. The party has chosen Rishi Sunak, who is of South Asian descent as well. Some have said, despite his politics, this is a great achievement for someone who is desi. In your opinion, how great is it that a person who is South Asian is now the prime minister of Britain from the conservative party?
2: Um, I almost had like a heart attack seeing that Um, I think he, to be really blunt, uh, I think he's awful. Um, I do not care about him being prime minister one bit. Um, I do agree that's where you can see identity politics run amok. I would argue there are different versions of identity politics. There's an identity politics that's very uh, misaligned from class. You have to have all three And I think a big part of what's missing sometimes from these ID politic battles is the class component. So like, for instance, um, majority of Indians in the diaspora are still struggling. And that's a function of another version of identity politics, the white identity politics that creates colonialism, capitalism and imperialism, right? So that's what I see. So in a sense, someone who's really true to the interests of most Indians and most South Asians and most people would be someone who is a socialist or communist or Marxist. That's that's one level. Um, so I think that's what's happening here. And yeah, I don't really care. Like Rishi Shunak, you know, I have no good feelings towards that man. He is, he's going to prove himself to be, again, maybe he's not going to be, well, no, I don't know. He'll be extreme right wing like the other people are. He will find ways to maybe string along his narrative to suggest, yes, I've made it how great Britain is. And in the background, he'll still be doing the things that other prime ministers did, which is uh, get poor people to be poorer, uh, make the economy worse for most people, especially Black Britons and Asian Britons. And of course, uh, deport people. Like, you know, uh, I forgot her name. The person who presided before Liz Truss, it was another May woman. Yes. I think it was under her that she, you know, had a bunch of folks who were... um, Caribbean immigrants. And I use that term lightly because they were technically part of the empire and the empire would have been nothing without the Caribbean who came, oh, the Windrush generation, yes, who came to the UK who was calling for labor. But of course, uh, the UK, I guess, wanted them to return after a while, you know, or just didn't care. And then under Theresa May, a person who was a a woman, she was uh, fine with that, right? It was a complete scandal. And Rishi Sunak, again, I don't know much about his background. I think his family background is he's one of those um, Indians who actually grew up in Africa, part of the middle men uh, class between most Africans and the white elite. It's not surprising he's a conservative, right? Because again, there's the economic nature of it. And who knows, maybe racialized nature of it. Maybe he does like tactfully want to view himself as a person of color, but also as one of the good ones, right? Which I'm not surprised by. But yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's been, sorry if I'm ranting, but that's been on my nerves so much because i know the new york times posted about it and they're like making a huge thing about it and it's like this man's policies are going to hurt people of color mostly but also just anyone who's working class or poor and i do not care like i'm hindu-american i do not care if he's hindu-american i'm sorry hindu british or anything as long as he's a billionaire as long as he is a tory um i could care less so that's how i feel about it and that's what i think that's why I'm saying, like, yes, class analysis needs to happen. And that's why we also need to, um, there's a new book I want to highlight. Um, I think a few episodes ago, you spoke to Jody Dean, but she and another writer, Sharice Bird and Steli, they are edited a volume of Black communist women writers from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, I think. I have the book, I haven't read it yet, called Organized Fight, Win. And I think if people read books like that, they'll understand. You don't have to like throw away, quote-unquote, identity politics, but you do need to bring in socialism and communism into it you really need and I think you mentioned this in your previous there's a weird even anti-communist lingo among some progressives that you know suggests like communism is white or something when in fact most of the world in which we saw communist revolutions and socialist ones whether elected or uprisings were in Asia Africa and certainly Latin America so yeah Rishi Sunak is not part of that tradition he is a He is actually a symbol of of what we're lacking, actually, especially with the, the Labor Party having kicked out Corbyn and now bring, bringing in a very right wing person like Keir Starmer. So that's that's my take. I don't like them and uh don't don't care about them. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: thank you so much for being on our show this week. Now that we have your contact information, uh, you know, that will be annoying you in the future to have, have you back on the show. Thank you so much for uh, being on the show this week. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much. I really look forward to talking to you guys again. And I really uh, love the show. So, yeah, it really meant a lot to be on here. So thank you. All
1: right. Thank you very much. It meant a lot to us, too. Thank you very much. (laughs) You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far.
0: This week's question from hell is here in the United States. We have an upcoming election on Tuesday, November 8th, whether you're in the States or not, wherever you are, whenever your next election is, what do you fear as its worst possible outcome? Over at Facebook, Justin M. has a mouthful. He says, racist gerrymandering and draconian Voter suppression, perpetrated by conservative state legislators and facilitated by SCOTUS's dismantling of the Voting Rights Act, results in a low turnout, leading to Republican control of Congress. Then, SCOTUS rules on independent state legislature theory in December, allowing conservative state legislatures to ramp up an anti-democratic... Ramp up anti-democratic policies unimpeded by federal intervention finalizing the right-wing minoritarian capture of America and the death of democracy. Uh, very well written. Uh,
1: I'd <laughs> like you to uh, write a whiteboard that for us. Uh, yeah, Justin. Right. Sender really appreciate it. And
0: then uh, Nick E says, Worst outcome, widespread rightist violence at the polls. Yeah, that would be... Hits a little close to home. Yeah, yeah. I think we had another one come in. Kim G over at Facebook says, As the voting numbers roll in, rigged is ceaselessly uttered by protesters and pundits that all at once... The rest of the people on Earth let out a collective melancholic sigh, blowing the world off its orbit. Satellites and space stations crash into the planet, knocking us further from our path. The gravitational pull of Venus sucks us into its gaseous atmosphere. We collide, then ricochet off the burning sun. <laughs>
2: Holy that would, cow. That
0: would be the worst one possible, Kim G. We've got some little arts degrees going on in our <laughs> listeners this morning. Uh that's everything we have so far. The person with
1: our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our swag right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support. You can still send your answer to this week's question from hell uh, by emailing us this is at gmail.com, or you can post on Facebook, Facebook.com slash this is hell radio, or you can direct messages message it to us at This Is Hell Radio via Twitter, keeping it real, real deep in debt. Since 1996, This Is Hell, and if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash This Is Hell on Thursday's Patreon. Ageism, you know, the ism that sparks images of old white men waving their canes, shaking them and yelling "It's someone they can barely see to get off their lawn, which is an image that is rife with ageism, that is basing your understanding of someone on their age and their age alone. But, of course, it's not just about the way in which organizations like the Ontario Commission on Human Rights defines ageism, and that is ageism refers to two concepts, a socially constructed way of thinking about older persons based on negative attitudes and stereotypes about aging, and a tendency to structure society based on an assumption that everyone is young, thereby failing to respond appropriately to the real needs of older people. Both those concepts are based on ageism towards those who are older, when in fact there is also ageism against those who are younger as well, and both can be hard to recognize. Older people likely do not recognize they're engaging in ageism against younger people, and younger people are usually oblivious to applying ageism against older people. It's all because older people are feeble and younger people are stupid. Or is it? Spoiler alert, it isn't. So this week's Patreon monologue is all about ageism, and of course how it is affected by, you guessed it, capitalism also on Patreon we recently received emails from both Martin F in Chicago and Patrick in Seattle about as Patrick described the Carter administration national security director this is a big new of Brzezinski and the road to 9/11 last week Martin sent a link to an interview from the year 2000 to a monthly review post titled revelations of Carter's former advisor yes the CIA entered Afghanistan before the Russians that interview was conducted by a past guest on our show historian David Gibbs in fact David was on Our very first podcast way back on September 15th, 2001, four days after 9-11, when it wasn't even being called podcasting yet. David was on to give us a background on Afghanistan as it appeared the U.S. would be going to war there. That is, if the war had not already begun without the knowledge of the American people. Not that the people would mind as they were being whipped up into a war frenzy through misleading statements and outright lies being made by the Bush administration and the corporate establishment media, with both Martin and Patrick wondering about what was known about Afghanistan before the war even officially started. We thought it would be a good time to share a conversation with David from shortly after the attacks of 9-11. So what was David writing back then? Well, around that time, David was posting articles like U.S. chooses allies, or U.S., Choose allies carefully. Remember, bin Laden began his career as a U.S. ally. Those opinions of David's were not popular opinions at the time. As only a few years later, in 2004, after a series of ads in the University of Arizona newspaper railed against left-wing professors, a student allegedly reported, Professor David Gibbs to the FBI for being an anti-American communist who hates America. You don't have to put in the who hates America. When you say you're an anti-American communist, yeah, it's kind of implied that you hate America. At the time David was on the show, he was an associate professor of political science at the University of Arizona. He's now a professor of history at the University of Arizona. But the only way you can get my take on ageism and hear our talk on U.S. involvement in Afghanistan with an alleged communist four days after 9-11 is by... Supporting This Is Hell and becoming a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com/slash This Is Hell. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth. The rest of your answers to this week's question from Hell. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell, live from Hangover Country. This is Hell, and I know you have Haffier because he's sitting there right in front of me.
0: One, two, you know what to do. Next. One more time. The moment truth.
3: Super Truth. Dead people find you bargains. If you believe that a right-to-work law is about supporting workers' rights, I've got some swampland in Florida you might want to buy. Not a swamp, actually. More of a bog. How much does it cost? If you have to ask, you can't afford it. It's a pretty special bog, Windover Pond, since 1982, Windover Archaeological Site. They found some 8,000-year-old brains in that Florida bog. No, none of them belonged to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, but that is a good guess. Like the governor's brain, these have shrunken down to a quarter of the size of that of a living sentient human. Also like the governor's brain, one would be hard-pressed to use it for thinking in its current condition. Different from the governor's brain is that the 8,000-year-old brains have the excuse of having been buried under 10 feet of peat for 8,000 years. Eighty centuries, eight millennia thereabouts. Archaeologists had the bog drained so they could retrieve all the dead people. They found about 10,000 pieces of human remains representing some 168 corpses. And this was no mass grave like that mass frog grave we learned about a few weeks ago in the segment entitled, The Cambridge Holocaust. This was not the locus of any war or massacre or even Black Plague body dump, nor was this a mass sacrificial site. This, dear listeners, was a community cemetery. The people were mostly buried in the fetal position on their left side with their heads oriented north. They were buried ceremonially with objects and covered in woven fabric, fabric that survived, protected from decay for 80 centuries by the pH-neutral water and anoxic, antibiotic nature of the bog. The deceased were even anchored with stakes so they wouldn't float to the surface and be picked over by varmints. These ceremonial burials took place in this bog over generations and DNA showed that one family had been burying their dead there for over a hundred years. Tradition! Tradition! But they weren't Jews from the Pale of Settlement, most likely, though genetically they are thought to have originated in what is now Russia, but in the North Asian part. So maybe some of their descendants were neighbors, either in Siberia or down in Boca Raton. People get around. Were they maybe aliens from outer space? Or were they white Europeans who skated over on top of the frozen Atlantic, making the true claim of First Nationhood actually a white thing? These questions are controversial, undoubtedly, but nonetheless stupid and without relevance. More important is, how did Arlene Cooper Dwight in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, know to go to Nordstrom Rack on Monday, November 14, 1994, and find the polo shirts her uncle wanted for Christmas on sale even before that week's value pack of coupons arrived in the mail. Looking back on her reason for going to that emporium, Arlene linked the links of her chain of decisions back together and said she believed she was told to go and avail herself of the on-sale items by a figure in a dream. The figure looked like a timeless combination of Danny Trejo and Lou Diamond Phillips. Two years later, Tad Rostov felt the uncontrollable desire to go to Office Depot and buy an eight-pack of fluorescent cream gel pens at 50% off the regular price and a blank book full of black pages especially for use with fluorescent cream gel pens, also at 50% discount. For his niece on her 14th birthday. It was an entirely impulse buy, yet it was exactly what his niece had wanted even more than the tickets to the Mariah Carey concert her parents bought for full price. Asked what, if any, images had passed through his mind during the bargain achievement experience, Tad Rostov said that he'd had a vision of a mortar and pestle carved out of rock. Uncannily, a mortar and pestle of just that description had been retrieved from among the burial objects at the Windover archaeological site. For the next 28 years, up to the present moment, several dozen people throughout the area from Florida to the Continental Divide have been directed by visions or dreams, or in one case, a talking goose, to go to specific retail outlets. Upon arriving at the establishments, they invariably encountered one or more severely discounted items with special significance to themselves or their friends or family members. From fresh English peas to a fat leather barca lounger recliner with electric beverage cooling cup holder, the bargains just keep coming. Bargains, bargains, bargains galore. And every vision seems to have some link to the ancient community whose cemetery was unearthed at Winnodover Pond. Was there really a connection? Or were the discount recipients being swayed by leading questions or winks, leers, and other suggestive facial spasms of their interlocutors? There was only one scientific way to know for sure, and that was to bring in a psychic consultant. Her name has been lost in the shuffle. Likewise, any description of her appearance or mannerisms. Some say she erased all that evidence from the minds of all who might give her up to the angry ancestors of her mysterious people. But that conjecture is odd, ill-considered, and unlikely that it might be true, or even super true. Following up on this non-sequiturial clue, Our researchers have pieced together what might have happened during the psychic's investigation, given the lack of any parameters of reason. Her name was, let's say, Flois. Not a real name, or anyone's real name, probably. Using a device of her own devising, this... Flois, if indeed that was her name, set up her pulleys, refracting balloons, intake samovars, sparkling parabola funnel mirrors of flignite and squartz, cranked it up to 115 gligerpses, and let her rip. The complantangent meter went wiggling off the chart, the direction flamblossism mechanically oblated through the roof, describing a refraction arc of no more than three degrees, three micrometric minutes from the burial ground of the mysterious civilization and from there to the remains of their prune-like shrunken brains bent on a bias as though through a glass darkly directly to the purchasing centers of the shopper's pineal glands, thereby stimulating their eyes, ears, nose, and throat, preparing them emotionally, physically, and a couple other ways to hunt for, locate, and purchase at a substantial reduction in the normal price, whatever the ancient persons viewing our market economy from their portals in the ship of dead souls sailing through the grasmodic effluviasma What were we talking about again? Anyway, that proved it to our satisfaction, and when it comes to smart shopping, satisfaction is what it's all about. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day.
1: Live from land stolen from the Pottawatomie people, this is Hell. Please join Jeff and I this evening during This is Hell office hours happening from 6 to 10 p.m. here in Chicago. Downstairs at the bar, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. That's 2251 West Devon Avenue. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and give us the rest of our listeners' answers.
0: This week's question from hell is here in the United States. We have an upcoming election on Tuesday, November 8th. Whether you're in the United States or not, wherever you are, whenever your next election is, what do you fear as its worst possible outcome? There are no new responses.
1: So the answers I liked most were, uh, Justin, I really appreciate your very lengthy answer, as well as Kim G's. Uh, Those were both really great. Todd H., I liked yours that said, uh, you thought that the worst thing that could, uh, the worst possible outcome the, that you feared was no clear winners in any election, and therefore six more months of political ads. Bree P saying the worst thing, worst outcome that she can imagine is the 2024 election. Neil C saying absolutely no change whatsoever. SLS doing a little bit of a callback by saying the ghosts of Reagan and Thatcher run everything. Oh, wait, that's the same as Neil C.'s answer, isn't it? And Nick E. saying worst uh, outcome, widespread rightist violence at the polls. That makes this week's winner Todd H. for saying no clear winners in any election and therefore six more months of political ads, which really resonates with American voters here in the U.S. Congratulations, Todd H., Just tell us what piece of This Is How swag you want. We'll get it in the mail to you as soon as possible. My answer to this week's question from hell, whether you are in the states or not, wherever you are, whenever your next election is, what do you fear as its worst possible outcome? My answer is, well, I'm going to go with that old chestnut of death, as in people being shot and killed, election polling places becoming Shot up scenes of human carnage with fascist attempts at taking control through violence and intimidation. But maybe that's just me. Thanks to everybody who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. Dan, I will not be here next week, but I believe uh, Sebastian Lindsay, and you will be hosting Best of Shows featuring interviews handpicked by our staff from the 26 year archive we have of our on air conversation. So listen to the live stream Monday through Wednesday at our normal time, 10 a.m. Chicago time, and the podcast posted shortly after. This is hell.com or however, wherever you listen to the show. Uh, Like I said, well, I will not be here next week other than doing the Patreon podcast again next Thursday. I will be here for the Patreon podcast. The reason I won't be here is uh, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes, back-end kind of stuff that we need to get done on the show, and it cannot get done unless I have some time to do so. Now, this would not have been a problem if I was physically fit, completely recovered from the several surgeries I had from March to July of this year, uh, to be honest, I'm pretty certain I came back to the show from all of those life-saving operations a little bit too early, a little too soon. And I pushed myself a bit too hard and have been doing so ever since because I have not fully recuperated. I have not been able to keep up with certain tasks or address some of the bigger projects we have been working on related to the show. So I won't be here next week, although you will be able to hear me. I'm Patreon Thursdays, and I'm taking the week off from work to get a lot more work done. I also have tons of doctor's appointments, like four of them, so not a great week. Thanks to this week's producers, Dan Hill, Lindsey Gorey, and Richard Norwood. Thanks to Jeff for another moment of truth, Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History, Sebastian Vooper, Alexander Jerry, and Theron Humiston, just because. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon, patreon.com slash how. Hope to see all of you again at our this Is how meet and greet, that's really a drink and think. This Is how office hours from 6 to 10 p.m. tonight at Carrie's Lounge. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid.
3: My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down.